Simone engaged in several email exchanges with him because she thought he was the guy she met at her seminar at the University of Washington. It wasn't until he began making cryptic references to things in her personal life he couldn't possibly have known about that she got the fantods. She didn't know who to confide in about it either. It was too similar to her trip down the rabbit hole on the hollow net, and the bitterness that led to still lingered. So she did what she was learning to do more and more. She kept it to herself. Besides, as soon as she confronted the stranger about it, he stopped responding, and her last email to him was returned by the mailer daemon. We know what Marina would say about that, right? Always trust the daemon. They know things. And yet, Simone said nothing to her team. The bus wasn't getting crowded so much as it was beginning to smell. That many bodies sleeping in it for several nights on our trip, and now out of fear of sleeping in the house, were all the Fantod Pack needed to inspire us to come up with a solution. Faraday Cage Wallpaper Not something one would easily find anywhere but online unless they happened to be in Humboldt County. There are more conspiracy theorists per capita here than anywhere in the world. Weed-induced paranoia is a real thing, FYI. Wearing Marina's patent-pending Faraday caps for protection, the team lined the walls of the study with the nickel and carbon-treated paper quickly, it was an interior room and the only one in the house that was both big enough for the three of us to sleep comfortably and windowless. It's also where the router was, although it was Simone who insisted we still be able to access the Internet. We all agreed it would be helpful. The Faraday screening would still keep us protected from directed radio frequency energy. I wish I'd paid more attention to the urgency in her insistence. We have an internet connection, though. Despite his offer to help relocate a set of bunk beds from upstairs, we managed to get them into the study without Stephen's help. Same with the wrought iron daybed from the sunroom. That thing was a bitch, but we had too much to discuss that we didn't need him overhearing. Did he have anything to do with the death of the Bremers, for instance? If so, how safe are any of us in this house? Or, as he was in the dream that introduced me to Wallace, was he just a tool? Let's not forget, in that dream, he was perfectly comfortable plotting a murder to gain ownership of this house. We had the holiday weekend before anyone would show up from Children's Protective Services and still needed to figure out what to do about the deed. The deed all of us were certain Stephen had forged. 
The most pressing question was why? Was he motivated by not wanting to see Wallace and Simone displaced? Or simply not wanting to lose his apartment? More importantly, was there a sinister motive behind him wanting to see Wallace and Simone stay in the House of Phantots? If I were to be granted even temporary guardianship of both girls, I may also be able to obtain a temporary conservatorship over her ownership of the house until she turns 18, which is only a few months away. That rent check from the poet with the silver skull ring on his pinky finger could come in handy, especially since my royalties were dwindling. Would that affect my suitability to foster these girls? One other thing was nagging at me. Perhaps it was the emerging foster mother in me that had me picking up on Simone's odd detachment. Had the death of Betty and Emery triggered an exacerbation of the dissociation commonly seen in children who have endured the trauma of losing their family of origin and being thrust into the foster care system? Or was there something going on with her she was keeping to herself? I tried to assuage my concern by focusing on the fact that at least she was back in the place she'd called home and among friends. Friends who were helping each other create a comfortable space that offered very little privacy, but protected us all from intrusion by an outside entity none of us fully understood, but were certain was not friendly. I would love to report that we all slept like babies that first night in our Faraday-screened room, but it would be a lie. Somebody had different plans for at least one of us. Somebody or something. <laughs> it's night. I'm standing on the shore of a river delta where it meets a dark ocean. A single white horse is screaming as she struggles against the pull of the river's merciless current carrying her out to sea. She disappears into the brackish water and is gone. In her wake, a wave of five white horses rises up out of the ocean. Four of them begin to gallop fiercely ashore. She is with them, one of them, triumphantly leading them. The ocean's depth has transformed her into the embodiment of fury. Was it the ocean itself that did it? Or the combination of the ocean's depth and what she carried in her heart? It had been there all along, hadn't it? That fierceness. All but one continue upstream. That one has stopped to look back, searching for something. Is there something about the darkness she's emerged from that's calling to her?
I woke with a start to the sound of the ocean, which was quickly dwarfed by the sound of my heart racing. There are no windows in this room, and the door is shut tight. So how am I hearing the ocean? And why have I got this earworm in my head? Is that David Bowie's song, Sound and Vision? It's raging through my head worse than the sound of my racing heart. And that's all it takes to go from dreaming about the ocean to hearing the ocean to laying here thinking about what lives in its depths and what any of it has to do with sound and vision. <laughs> if I was an ancient god self-created by dark energy itself, and someone was working to enslave me by taking control of my food supply, someone not even my own army was able to fight off, what would I do? I would bring in reinforcements, find someone who could speak my language, tune into their radio frequency and broadcast my message to them from where my station is located. But would that broadcast include sound and vision? I'd be an idiot to assume, like that software engineer from Bandung did, that it's just the Chinese behind the use of radio wave weapons on people. Making it look that way enables an escalation of tension between nation-states, which only feeds the machine the dark energy it craves. If you ask me, it's highly doubtful this is an East versus West thing. I've always thought of that as a red herring anyway. Best guess is, it's the opposition. And that cesspool is made up of people from East, West, North, and South. It's all about the Benjamins, not the Wangs. And for God's sake, somebody please tell Putin it's not about him before he hurts himself falling off those platform shoes. My mind just keeps zipping from thought to thought. What exactly are they doing with their targets, anyway? If you destroy every man, woman, and child on the planet just to harvest a bumper crop of dark energy, what then? There won't be anyone left to produce it for you. It goes without saying that the most important benefit of preservation is self-preservation. Unless... What you're doing with Havana Syndrome is sending a message to Cthulhu, a shot fired across the bow, so to speak, letting the old god know there's a new kid in town, one with the ability to destroy his food supply in the blink of an eye, or manage it in a quid pro quo arrangement. You do what we say, or we starve you. So who is using me to remote view those license plates in the Paris dream? And why? Because that's when I picked up Agents 1 and 2. And judging from the menu they ended up on, my guess is they weren't on Cthulhu's team. Is it possible the opposition is still trying to learn the identities of the five entities? Why? 
Or was the whole point to show me that it's possible to use a lucid dreamer to remote view in their sleep? Oh, great. Now I'm laying in the dark doing the circular thinking thing. And the only thing it's accomplishing is making myself dizzy. Is using someone to remote view while dreaming even a thing? Had I even bothered to look it up on the Internet? It can't be any more circular than laying here with these thoughts, can it? Simone's laptop is sitting right there on the desk. What harm can it do to boot it up and head out on the electronic superhighway? And that's when I learned just why the young psychic finder was so anxious about having an internet connection. The poor kid is being treated to the electronic version of street theater. Her browser automatically restored her previous session, which seemed odd. It opened to the sites she'd been on the last time she was online. And there it was, all of it, right there on those sites, leaving her with a scripted form of steganography that only someone with a thorough knowledge of not just her personal history, but her day-to-day -day life would know the key to decrypting. They were using her daily hexagram on the online I Ching site, her daily fortune cookie on another site, her daily palm reading and daily om on two more sites. More than one of those sites was using videos with music and memes to drive home their message, sound, and vision and all of them combined formed a coherent message in which anyone led to pay attention could easily find meaning pertaining to them, especially a psychic finder. The moment that thought occurred to me, the browser abruptly closed. I found myself sitting and staring at her desktop. It was uncommonly tidy, just a few files. One stood out, her personal journal. Opening it, the meticulous documentation of these daily communiques and ongoing conversations she was having with her invisible friends in response took my breath away. Starting with her trip down the holonet that day in which she was shown a version of herself as a famous award-winning documentarian of the paranormal. It was clear that Simone didn't get the point when Marina told her they hook you by the ego. How could she not see that she was being played? For as much credit as I'd been giving the psychic finder, she's obviously been unable to find a clue as to what was being done to her. She's being groomed for something, and my hunch is it's to find something for them that they'd been unable to locate. And it appears that something includes information about what the Fantod Pack is up to and how exactly we all ended up together. Going back as far as the beginning of this journal, her daily hexagram was the same every day. It was the 42nd hexagram, 
It furthers one to have something to do. That message given to anyone on a daily basis is bound to drive them forward, even if they have no idea where they're going. It was clear from a recent introduction of someone that she was struggling to figure it out. An actual exchange had begun with someone she'd assumed she'd met in Seattle at her seminar. Her notes indicated she thought he was one of them. Weren't those the exact same words Marina used when she first arrived at the House of Phantods? Whoever they were, their vehicle for driving the psychic finder was obviously a combination of laying this trail of breadcrumbs on the Internet, accessing the NSA backdoor key to her Windows operating system, and street theater, and it started long before we took her to Seattle for her seminar on filming the paranormal. There is no question that nothing about any of this is paranormal. The supernatural doesn't need gimmicks. This whole thing stinks of the opposition. That's not paranormal. It's perfectly normal. And by normal, I mean it's the nature of anyone with even an ounce of power to abuse it. And in this case, a 12-year-old girl is the one being abused. I clicked on her browser icon again, thinking I'd check out the University of Washington's Paranormal Research Center. Only this time, it didn't restore the previous session. It opened to a YouTube video, Bowie's Sound and Vision. I had planned on casually bringing up the use of sound and vision as a programming tool in hypnosis over breakfast. I'd learned about neurolinguistic programming a few years back while doing research for my novel about the absurdity of mass surveillance. Figured I could hide the fact that I'd been snooping on Simone's laptop by casually dropping that it was a relief to be sleeping in a room where at the very least our dreams couldn't be accessed by anyone wanting to do a little programming by inserting sound and vision in our sleep. but I was interrupted by the ringing of the house phone. The coroner's findings surprised no one. The Bremers died of acute exacerbation of chronic regional cerebral blood flow disruption. Basically, both had aneurysms after a long period of not enough blood to the brain. Something triggered it. The coroner was either unwilling or unable to pursue just what that something was. We had almost no time to ask ourselves why the opposition would want those particular foster parents dead before the doorbell rang. My mind was racing. The word chronic was significant. I was asking myself just how long this could have been going on as I reached for the doorknob. 
I guess I should have been asking myself if I'd brushed my teeth and combed my hair instead. A scowling caseworker from Children's Protective Services stood on the porch, clutching a clipboard to her chest like some kind of modern-day conquistador with 21st-century armor. And the first thing she wanted to know was what that bus was doing in the driveway. Old friends of the Bremers coming to pay their respects, I said as I shoved my hair under one of Marina's Faraday caps. Pointing to the wicker chairs on the porch, I suggested we sit out there and talk. She wouldn't be any more protected out there than she'd be inside the house, but at least the risk of her discovering we'd turned the study into a dormitory was eliminated. Turns out her scowl had more to do with being bothered having to find another foster home for Wallace and Simone than it did with my bad breath and bedhead. And it completely disappeared when I asked her for an application to be their foster parent. Her mood lifted even further when I told her the house had been left to Wallace, who would reach majority in a few months. Until then, temporary custodianship shouldn't be hard to get especially if I was her foster parent. I finally relaxed enough to take a deep breath by the time I stood waving at her low-budget economy car heading down the driveway. I was making the social worker's job easier for her, and just might have made an ally in the process. Wallace joined me and leaned against the railing. While I was busy filling out forms with clipboard Connie, she made plans to pick up the Bremers' ashes from the funeral home late this afternoon. It would mean all of us piling on board the Abuela Express once again, but only for the short trip to the funeral home and drive to the Eel River Delta. It was where Betty and Emery met as kids, and the place both of them had often said they wanted their ashes to go. Sending them out to sea from the sandy shore of the river just as the sun sank into the Pacific, the five of us stood silent, deep in thought. The earworm from this morning was still running through my head. But something managed to distract me from it, an oddly familiar sound. Was that a rumbling? <laughs> yes, it was but not the rumbling of a seismic event. The rumbling of approaching hooves pounding the riverbank's wet sand. There was no time to shout at the others to get back. A small herd of translucent horses, pale and ghostly white, came barreling downstream, veering and splashing into the shallows just inches from where we stood, where the river flows into the ocean's dark waters. The Fantod pack stood silent, watching the vision as they disappeared into the deep. Something told me they would not be coming back up. Sometimes ghosts are predictable, and sometimes they're not. And while the appearance of ghost horses at a clandestine funeral may have been unpredictable, when I noticed David Bowie standing on the other side of the river tipping his hat, I knew this was one of those times it was entirely predictable. 
so predictable, I'd dreamed the entire thing the night before, despite sleeping in a Faraday cage. Four of us turned to walk back to the bus. I didn't need to turn back around to know Simone still stood there facing the water, searching the horizon for that one clue that will help her put it all together. I'll sneak a look at today's journal entries once she's sound asleep, but something tells me it will say nothing about sound and vision.